Hello everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. Happy month of October to you. And a very happy month of October to you. This shouldn't shock anyone. And if it does, you seriously haven't been paying attention. But Dina and I both love the entire month of October. Yes, we do. You know, you've got that fall weather, it's not too cold yet, everything looks prettier, and of course, Halloween. Now, we think Halloween deserves more than just one day, so for the rest of the month of October, we're going to be covering some extra ghastly tales. That's right. So this month, we're going to be covering ghosts, a particularly evil woman, and much more. We're going to get weird. And we can't wait. We'll also have a ton of special Halloween content posted up on the socials throughout the month as well, as well as some very extra special content going up on Patreon, so stay tuned for that. But today is a very special day. It sure is. Today, we will be visiting the birthplace of the Spice Girls, Corgis, Trumpets, and our very own Charlotte. <laughs> so when uh, we were doing research for this, I was kind of thinking about like the differences between North America and the UK. And for me, one of the huge things is how old our buildings are. Like just for example, the cathedral in the city I was born in is over 900 years old. That's amazing. A lot of cities in the UK, like they still have the original Roman walls that surround them, which is super cool. Like many houses that people still live in today are hundreds of years old. So to me, with all that history, it kind of makes sense that shit's going to be a little bit haunted. You're going to get ghosts. Exactly. Now, with that being said, it's time to get into today's episode. So today, we're going to be talking about Borley Rectory, also known as the most haunted house in England. This place was built back in 1862, and the strange reports began almost immediately. It was located on Hall Road near the Borley Church in Borley, Essex, England. The building burnt down in 1939, and it was finally demolished in 1944, but that didn't stop the activity, and it's reported that whatever was haunting Borley Rectory moved into the church across the street. With the exception of our Haunted Dolls episode and our paranormal listener stories, we haven't had much of a chance to talk about this kind of stuff. And I don't think we could have picked a better place to talk about. Yeah. This is one of those places where the reports are not only made by countless people over the course of literal centuries, but the reports are non-stop. It's almost as if this place was and is still alive with the spirits of those no longer there. But before we get into tales of ghosts and things that go bump in the night at Borley Rectory, we want to go over a few things. First and foremost, what is a rectory? A rectory is a residence that is used by a parish priest. This particular priest served the three small hamlets surrounding the area. So basically, this was a large house for the priest and his family to live while he tended over the church across the street. This area also had its own cemetery, which of course is not uncommon, but it sure does add to the overall creepy vibe to the area. And, and fun fact about the cemetery, mm. um, they had so many cats at Borley Rectory that they actually had an entire section of the cemetery devoted to the cats and they had their oh, own tombstones. Oh, I love that. Now, is it a cemetery or a graveyard? Because a cemetery is not attached to a church but a graveyard is that's the difference well then it's a graveyard okay cool just then checking. it's a graveyard yeah Fantastic. i i my morbid curiosity that's like a little fun fact for y'all yeah if it's a graveyard it has to be attached to a church but a cemetery is not attached to a church morbid lessons with charlotte there you go I dig it. so speaking of creepy let's talk about what the place actually looked like Borley Rectory was a gothic-style, gigantic red-brick building. It stood two stories tall and sat on an area of around four acres. We'll be sharing some photos of it, but I mean, you can absolutely 
see why this place was a huge source of gossip. And another fun fact about Borley Rectory, the architect who originally designed it, a man named Augustus Pugin, was also well known for some of his other work, which included many other churches and rectories, and the interior of the Palace of Westminster, and most notably, Big Ben. The rectory itself was built for the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull in 1862, and he moved in around a year later. It's incredibly interesting to note that this is not even the first rectory that was built on the land. The rectory that stood there originally burnt down in 1841, which is kind of interesting considering Borley also burnt down. And some would argue that it did burn down under mysterious circumstances, but we'll get to that a little bit later. This actually caused Borley to be a source of local gossip when it was first built. I think even back then, people couldn't argue that the building itself was creepy looking as hell. The fact that the building that was there before also burnt down only made the locals talk about it even more. The people who lived in the area actually warned Henry Bull about living on the property due to the many reports of it being haunted. He, of course, did not listen. Classic man. Seriously, and we've seen this time and time again. If the locals of an area talk about a certain place being haunted and straight up tell you not to move into it, like, at least give it some consideration. Like, I'm not saying, like, don't move there, but, like, prepare yourself for the worst. If everyone says there's ghosts, maybe there's ghosts. Maybe he felt protected because he was a reverend. And he was like, well, I couldn't possibly be haunted because I am a man of the cloth. The ghost can't get me. <laughs> Legends also told of a monastery being built on the land as early as 1362, but unfortunately, these reports cannot be proved. Unless you would consider some of the ghosts who apparently called Borley home proof. There are as many people who believe that, like many hauntings, all of this could have started as a love story. The tale of the monk and the nun is arguably one of the most famous stories to come from this case, but it's also one of the most disturbing. Legend has it that a monk and a nun had fallen in love. They agreed to run away together and leave their post behind, knowing that if they were caught, they would almost certainly face death. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. The two were caught and the nun was forced to watch the love of her life be beheaded. And if that wasn't bad enough, once they killed him, they bricked her up alive. It was reported that the nun screamed for mercy, but eventually her screams quieted and then stopped completely. And apparently this was a bit of a trend, because this is not the only story of this kind to happen either. At Whitby Abbey in North Yorkshire, there's also tales of a ghostly nun named Constance de Beverly, who haunts the abbey with her pleas for release after she was also bricked up for breaking her vow of chastity. So I guess that's just the punishment for nuns who don't feel like nunning anymore. I feel like personally if that happened to me, I would sure as hell haunt the absolute oh, crap out of this building. Like, I'd be pissed. You would not see the fucking end of me. I mean, I they would never accept me as a nun in the first place, but I would bring upon a vengeance that you would never have seen before. You, you would so show them petty. why they shouldn't have made you a nun in the first place. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So apparently the nun feels pretty much the same way we do because... Countless people have reported seeing the nun walking around the rectory, so much so that a specific area has actually been dubbed Nun's Walk. Some have even seen her looking through some of the windows or simply just standing there as if she was waiting for someone who would never come. We've kind of talked about this before, but there are different types of hauntings. Some hauntings are considered intelligent, meaning that they have the ability to communicate or interact with the living in some way. Other hauntings seem to be more of a presence stuck on a loop. Just something going through the motions that doesn't have the ability to interact other than being seen. 
These are called residual hauntings, and this is a really great example of one. Like we'd mentioned, reports of a monastery do exist, but there isn't really a ton of proof that it was ever actually there, other than the stories that remain. Although you have to admit that if it is true, that's a pretty rough start to this place. I would imagine beheading a monk and then bricking up a nun is pretty much the highest level of evil you can do. I feel like that is guaranteeing that you're gonna have bad fucking vibes for Bad life. juju, you like, guys. Like, don't do that. Don't do that. The original rectory was quite a bit smaller than the one we see in a lot of the famous pictures. Henry Bull added a full wing to the house to accommodate his large family. Apparently the reverend was quite a fertile fella, and he and his wife had a whopping 14 children. Who boy. If any of you are confused because, um you're wondering why a priest was able to have 14 kids. Um, just a little fun, quick history lesson for you. Most of the UK is not Catholic. We are Protestant for the most, I should say we, I'm not religious, but most of the UK is Protestant. And in Protestant religion, a priest can have a wife and kids. So fun fact for y'all there. They can have 14 of them. They can have 14 kids. So the reports of things going on started pretty small. <laughs> I'm sorry. Can you imagine having four? I can't even think of 14 people I like. No. Having and then to share a house with them. And ghosts? And ghosts. Poor woman. I'm no kidding. So the report started pretty small. A few locals claimed to hear unexplained footsteps while in and around the property, but it wasn't until July 28th, 1900 that things really seemed to take off. Four of the reverend's daughters reported to have seen the nun not too far from the house one evening. When they called out to her, she ignored them. The girls eventually got closer to the nun, but then she completely vanished before they could actually approach her. Many people close to the family were familiar with the story and all agreed that the girls truly believed that they saw the nun that night. Not only that, reports of serpent bells ringing at all hours of the night became pretty common and numerous other people reported seeing full-blown apparitions. Another famous sighting at Borley was that of the Phantom Coach. There are a few different reports of this one. Some claim that the coach is being pulled by four ghostly horses, while others report it being pulled by nothing at all. What seems to stand out the most to people is not the coach itself, but the coachman who drives it. Some people do say that there are two coachmen present, but what remains consistent in the reports is that the coachman or men are missing their heads. And I mean, you wouldn't want to see that. That's just a bad time. It's very much like Sleepy Hollow vibes to me. Yeah. Headless horseman kind of... And why are they missing their heads? Well, they're beheading people left, right, and center oh, at this rectory. Oh, that's true. That's true. It all starts to come together. They're all going to come point. back. It's just going to be a bunch of heads and a bunch of headless guys. <laughs> oh, my Lord. On May 2nd, 1892, Henry Bolt passed away and the rectory was taken over by his son, Henry Foister Bolt, also known as Harry. Something interesting to note is that paranormal activity has been known to increase or even just begin after traumatic events. After the death of Henry Bull, the activity only escalated. Because that's exactly what you need after you've been through some shit. Ghosts. Right? Harry Bull passed away in 1927, and something interesting to note is that he died in the exact same room that his dad did. The Blue Room. That's such a sad name for a room that people just die in. I feel like when you give a name to things like... I mean, and it probably was something as innocent as the wallpaper was blue, yeah. right? But blue and then the you know, attachment to sadness and then people dying in this room. Again, bad vibes. I picture just like a bunch of portraits of really sad clowns or something in the room. Oh, and just no. like dead people all the... It was bad times. <laughs> bad times. Bad times. 
Many people would later report seeing the ghost of Harry Bull himself in the room. Once Harry Bull passed away, Borley had a difficult time finding a new priest. Understandably right? so, I feel like. It actually took a few months before they could find anyone else to tend to the parish, but eventually they did. Reverend Guy Eric Smith and his family were the next to call Borley Rectory their home. And this is when shit really seems to have hit the fan ghost-wise. Mrs. Smith was cleaning in the kitchen one day when she found a brown paper package in one of the cupboards. She opened it up and was shocked to see that it contained a human skull. I think at this point it goes without saying that this is probably never a good sign of things to come. No, that doesn't exactly ever mean you're going to have a good day from there on out. I don't know that it would ruin my day, but it would certainly derail my day. It would be a quite a bump. <laughs> it seemed though as if her moving the skull increased the activity even more and now whatever presence was in Borley Rectory really began to make itself known. Things began moving around on their own or simply just going missing without explanation. And not only that, they began to hear tapping on the walls. And we learned in the Hinterkaifeck series that we did that tapping on the walls is 100% a huge red flag. Whether it's a haunting or whether it's a human being hiding between your walls never a good chances sign. are you're not gonna have a good time or you know what if you have rats or raccoons also not a good time yeah, they're, they're gonna eat your stuff <laughs> Hello everyone, I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. And we want to share some very exciting news for you. We have partnered with Udi for the month of October. Udi makes incredibly comfy and adorable oversized blanket hoodies, and I have to tell you, these are a lifesaver in the colder months. Seriously, there's nothing like getting comfy and cozy with your Udi and a true crime documentary on a cold day. You could not be more right. Udi also makes weighted blankets, sleep tees, and more. And the best part is that now, if you use the code the Grim Curriculum, when you place your order, you will get $35 off that order. That's code T-H-E-G-R-I-M-C-U-R-R-I-C-U-L-U-M. All one word. Nice work. <laughs> and we know it's October. You probably don't want to think about Christmas, but these make amazing gifts for a loved one or for yourself. So make sure you visit theoodie.com to place your order today. That's T-H-E-O-O-D-I-E dot C-O-M. And that code one last time is The Grim Curriculum for $35 off. Check it out and thank you for listening. So, at this point, the entire family was terrified and they decided to write to the Daily Mail, which I would imagine back in those days wasn't quite the uh, tabloid rag it is today. It's funny, I was going to ask you about that because I heard the Daily Mail there and I was just like, that's tabloid. Yeah, that's I, like... I, I can, this is unconfirmed. Maybe someone in the UK that's uh, been around for a little bit longer can confirm this. Like, has the Daily Mail always been kind of a raggedy tabloid or did it have some credibility back in the, I guess, when was this? The Late. early 1900s kind of thing? Well, you know what? They were talking about ghosts back then, so... True. I feel like if they're anything what they are today, they would have been all over the ghost scene, so... I do just want to add one thing, though, that I did find a bunch of the articles from the Daily Mail, and I did read through them, and um, they're fun. Okay. They're fun. So, I mean, it must have definitely been, like, an interesting newspaper to read because it's very, like, sensationalized titles and, like... Oh, so maybe not too far yeah, from what I, it is The today. more I think about it, the more I'm kind of just like, you know what? I don't think things have changed all that much. <laughs>
So, in their letter, they explained the situation they were in and asked for help. They hoped that the Daily Mail would be able to get them in touch with someone who would be able to either fix whatever was happening in Borley Rectory or at least find a reason for it. The Daily Mail responded to them and after meeting with the family, they introduced them to a paranormal investigator named Harry Price. He was the director of the National Laboratory for Psychical Research. Harry Price actually became quite well known because of this particular case, but he already had somewhat of a reputation in the paranormal community that existed at the time. I guess you don't become the director of the National Laboratory for Psychical Research without having some kind of reputation. You clearly gotta be a pretty cool guy to get that gig. No kidding. He's someone that we would love to fully cover in the future because he led quite a wild life himself, even if you don't look at everything that happened at Borley. <laughs> so like we've mentioned in a few episodes, there was a huge interest in the supernatural and the occult during this time, especially in the UK. There were a lot of mediums and other types of investigators that were considered the real deal, but many more that were considered absolute frauds and were accused of taking advantage of desperate people wanting to talk to their passed on loved ones. He was actually well known for debunking these kinds of cases and dealing with fraud, so he seemed to be the best man for the job. However, instead of debunking anything, his introduction into Borley Rectory only seemed to awaken the spirits even more and things began to get violent. Objects were now being thrown at people and the spirits seemed to be trying as hard as ever to communicate. Activity in the Blue Room also increased during this time too. The Blue Room itself seems to be a hot spot in this house for sure. Not the only one of course, but one of many. And that doesn't really surprise us too much considering we know at least two people died in that room. So I mean if it was going to be any room, it makes sense that it would be this one. The news of what was happening at Borley Rectory began to spread with the introduction both of the Daily Mail and Harry Price, and it seemed that people absolutely loved reading into it. Numerous articles were published, and it really seemed like people just couldn't get enough. One of the articles describes Mr. Smith sitting in his chair, wielding a hockey stick, and I should quote, this is probably a field hockey stick, because we don't really play ice hockey in the UK. Oh, I got you right here. He was originally from Canada. Really? It was a hockey oh, stick because he was a hockey-loving man. I love that. Right? Well, you know what? I love to be corrected when it's something fun like that. Right? You know what? That he that was a hockey stick because I, I read that too and I was like, was it a hockey stick? I love that. It was a hockey stick. Amazing. I, it's just such a fun image. I, I love know. it. I love it. So the newspaper article says... One night, Mr. Smith, armed with a hockey stick, sat in the room and waited for the noise. Once again, it came, the sound of feet and some kind of slippers treading on the bare boards. Mr. Smith lashed out with his stick at the spot where the footsteps seemed to be, but the stick whistled through the empty air and the steps continued across the room. He tried to give that spirit a slap shot. He did. That particular article talks about various servants seeing strange things, including the nun and the phantom coach. Other articles, and again, this is why I loved looking into these articles, because <laughs> these are fun. They included titles such as, We saw the ghost of a beautiful nun walking through the church grounds. Like, straight to the point. And, Where the ghost threw the tooth glass at the headmaster. Do you know what a tooth glass is? So, neither of us were sure, so we decided to look up what a tooth glass is, and it is a glass for your dentures. Again, people around me, uh, like my friends and stuff growing up, always kind of made fun of the fact that because I'm British and like the the English have some fun names for things that oh, yeah. seem very like nonsensical and like kind of wishy-washy and silly. But tooth glass, it sounds so obvious, but we don't have things like that these days. So I don't see, know. I, I feel like for us, we would just call it like chasha zazulbe, which is just like a glass for your teeth. 
in Bosnia? Yeah. <laughs> I love I, I keep saying that. I love that. I'm loving all the things today. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good day to love things. Oh, man. It's the ghosts. They're a good influence on us. So, people began showing up at the rectory, hoping for a glimpse of the nun, or maybe hoping a ghost would throw something at them. Either way, this proved far too much for the Smith family, and in July of 1929, they moved out. They made it less than two years before they ended up leaving, and I don't blame I don't know what's worse, having ghosts in your house, or just having, like, random people constantly trying to see the ghosts in your house. No kidding. Especially when it's probably, like, a peaceful village, and suddenly hordes of people are showing up to be like, where's the ghosts? Once again, the church had difficulties finding a new priest. It took over a year before anyone was willing to take the job. In October of 1930, a man named Lionel Algeron Foister became the new rector to the parish. And if the name sounds a bit familiar, it should. Reverend Foister was related to the Bull family. And surprise, surprise, things only got worse from here. The violence only increased, and unfortunately, it began to target his wife, Marianne. And when we say that things got bad, we mean it. The Foisters reported that Marianne was not only having objects thrown at her, she was being physically assaulted by whatever this was. It was slapping her, knocking her down on the floor, and she reported that it almost completely pulled her out of the bed on multiple occasions. Gives me very much paranormal activity, 1930s style. God, no thank you. Not only that, the presence went from moving small objects to knocking large pieces of furniture over. Someone, or something, also began setting small fires. Very much poltergeist. Right? It's, it's interesting how it goes from, you get the residual haunting of the nun, mm-hmm. super chill, Peaceful. whatever. Yeah, and then the more the time goes on, the, the more it seems like they're wanting to communicate, and then there gets a point where they're... Yeah, full-on violence. Another thing that began to increase was the spirit's desire to communicate with the living. It now began leaving messages on the walls. They were directly targeted to Marianne and read, Marianne, help, get, while others asked her to pray and light candles. If that wasn't bad enough, the spirit, or spirits, also began to target their daughter, Adelaide. It pushed her down on numerous occasions, and it seemed to like throwing things at her. Reverend Foister had Harry Price come out and stay at the house to investigate. The Reverend also attempted to perform two exorcisms on the house, but was met with even more violence from the spirits, and they began throwing stones at him, some as large as a fist. It was also around this time that Harry Price conducted his famous wine bottle experiment. He placed two closed bottles of wine out on the table. Witnesses claim that the wine in one of the bottles turned to perfume, while the other one turned to dark ink. I'm not really sure what the idea behind this experiment was. Look what I can do! I guess so, (laughs) right? The family put up with this for a few years, but eventually moved out in 1935 when Reverend Foister's health began to fail rapidly. I'm gonna go on a bit of a tangent, so don't mind me, but this whole thing reminds me so much about the movie The Others. Yes, definitely. It came out in 2001, so you can't get me for spoiling it, but at the end of the movie, it turns out the main characters are actually the ones that are dead, and the ghosts are the people that keep moving into the house. I want to clarify that I'm basing all of this on like what was actually true, which it may or may not be, but... The ghost trying to communicate and talk to her by writing things like that, it just, it really makes me think of that movie. And it took place about 10 years before the movie set, but I couldn't get it off my mind. Like, what if something was there, and what if it didn't even know it was dead? It just knew it had intruders in its house. True. I mean, the residual hauntings are just kind of there. They just exist. Like we said, it's kind of like they're stuck playing on a loop. But with intelligent hauntings, we don't know. Like, this could possibly be the case, which, if that is true... 
that's an incredibly tragic way to spend the rest of eternity, is trapped in Awful. this weird limbo in between. Not knowing you're there or why you're there or even that, like, what everything else is. Yeah, because like, if, if you do parallel it to the others, maybe the ghosts that were throwing things around thought that the family was the ghost in that's this case, right? That's what I was right? thinking. Yeah. It's just like they're trying to scare them away and be like, ghosts, get out. But yeah, but it's like, oh, sorry, you're, you're the ghosts. So at this point, the church seemed to give up on finding a rector that would live at Borley for more than a few years, so they decided to decommission the house, and the building stood vacant for two years. The next person to move into Borley Rectory was none other than Harry Price himself. He had to essentially beg the owners of the property to allow him to rent it, and it took time, but he eventually wore them down. He actually took out a one-year lease on the place. He ended up bringing a team of investigators and sought out to finally explain what was actually happening at Borley Rectory. He put an ad in the Times on May 25th, 1937 in their personal section. It read, Haunted house. Responsible persons of leisure and intelligence, intrepid, critical, and unbiased, are invited to join Rota of Observers in a year's night and day investigation of alleged haunted house in home countries. Printed instruction supplied. Scientific training or ability to operate simple instruments, an advantage. How situated in lonely hamlet so own car is essential. That last line, own car is essential. You can come stay in this house for a year and look for spooky ghosts, but you have to have your own vehicle. You gotta get here yourself. <laughs> and soon enough, he was able to put together his ghost hunting team that would stay with him for that entire year. He made every single member of his team sign a haunted house declaration form where they each had to swear that they were not members of the press, that they would carry out their role to the best of their ability, and that they were not allowed to write or lecture about their experiences there. This, among many other things. It was an 11-point form that they had to sign off on before they were even allowed in the house. The team set up an observation room in the library of the house where they ate their meals, wrote about their findings, and took their breaks. We were actually able to find a recounting of what a typical day would have been like for them. They would take regular tours of the building and the property itself in order to watch and listen for anything strange. They also had someone stationed at the small summer house that sat near Nun's Walk a half an hour before dusk to half hour after to watch for the nun. Another person would be set up in the blue room where they would sit in complete darkness for an entire night. No, no, no I, absolutely not. It's you a no couldn't. for me. I feel like even as a human being in the dark, you would start to see and hear things regardless. You're stressed out already. You, you think the house is haunted. You're going to go crazy in that room. I mean, like, if no. you've ever been in a dark place staring in one direction, your mind does start to play tricks on you, Absolutely. right? So once they were finished at whatever post they were assigned to, they would then write a report about their visit that day or evening, and they would have to submit it to Price at his office at the University of London Council for Psychical Investigation. Interestingly enough... The majority of these reports are still available to be seen in London, and I would personally love to I see them in person. I would love to go see them. They are kept in the Borley Dossier, which is a part of the Harry Price collection at the Senate House in London. These contain the accounts of 48 people, and some of them are detailed to the minute. And now you can find 
um, bits and pieces of these on Harry Price's, uh, there's a harrypricewebsite.uk.co or something like that. Oh, or, .co.uk. .co.uk, yeah. yeah. And it has all of um, his findings. There's actually a Borley section where they talk yes. about all this. And I couldn't get, like, the full info, but, like, it's all there and you can see it in London. Absolutely. So we should go to London sometime and check oh, this shit out. Oh, I am so down to take a visit to the old country. <laughs> they conducted various investigations, but arguably one of the most famous ones was a seance that was conducted in March of 1938. Harry Price and his team claim that on this date, they were able to contact two spirits. One of them told them that her name was Marie Lair and that she was the nun who had died on the property. She told them that she broke her vows and left to stay with the man who lived on the property at the time, Harry Waldengrave. The two married, and the nun thought she had found true love. This was unfortunately not the case, and her new husband not only murdered her, he buried her in the cellar. These poor nuns can't catch a break. I think it's, honestly, I think maybe this place is just haunted if you're a nun. Mm-mm. Get the fuck not, out of Borley. Borley is not for you. Mm-mm. The second spirit claimed to be that of Sunex Amurs, and this spirit did not give a ton of information about itself. It did, however, claim that the rectory would burn down that very night. He also said that when the rectory did burn down, that human remains would be found. However, that didn't happen. Not the following day, anyway. Harry Price spent the entire year at Borley Rectory with his team and would leave once their lease was over. In December of 1938, Borley Rectory would see its last new resident, Captain William Hart Gregson. Upon moving in, it's said that his dog came up to the house and ran away in fright, never to be seen again. The drama. Why would you go into the house? If I tried to move into a house and I, like, tried to move my animals in and they all were like, fuck no. Well, and because, like, if you're bringing your animal to a new place, they're going to have some curiosity. They might be a little nervous, a little anxious. They're in a new place. If they straight up run out and then run away from you so far that you never find them again. That's that's the key there. The dog never came back. Captain Gregson was like, I, peace. Yeah, bye, doggy. Bye. On February 27th, 1939... Captain Gregson was unpacking in one of the rooms. He accidentally knocked over an oil lamp, which caused the house to go up in flames. Captain Gregson managed to make it out safely. However, Borley Rectory would burn down to the ground, only leaving a large pile of debris where the massive house once stood. It's said that as the fire was still burning, a nun could be seen inside of the rectory looking out from one of the windows by multiple people. What a scary thought. It's very cinematic. It is. It is, it's all very cinematic. It's just drama, drama, drama. There is a movie about it. I haven't seen it. There's a few movies about it. And oh my God. Actually, if you guys are really interested, if you want to watch something that is going to blow your mind in the most fun way possible, get a little stony pants tonight (laughs) and look up paranormal investigator interviews from the 70s. Oh, what a I vibe. had a time. I was watching these. They're they're all from the UK because it's all Borley related. I'm right? already picturing massive mustaches, big, yes, thick rimmed yes. glasses. Yes. They were fantastic. I loved it. So seriously, if you guys want something fun to do, 1970s paranormal investigators from the UK, you're welcome. 10 out of 10. Borley Rectory was no more. But that didn't stop curious onlookers, some who believed and some who were skeptics, to continue to search for answers. They held numerous vigils at the ruins and reports where the house stood continued. In 1943, Harry Price made his final trip to Borley Rectory. This time, he was able to fully excavate the cellar. There he found the remains of two people. One of them was the jawbone of a woman. 
After this investigation, the building was finally demolished. During this time, reports of bricks being thrown were made by many and numerous apparitions were seen. Many believed that tearing down what remained of the building would stop the activity, but they were wrong. Whatever existed at Borley Rectory did not want to leave. Instead, it appeared that all of the activity moved to the church and the graveyard that just sit across the street. This is a spot that a lot of people have investigated, and you can see a lot of ghost hunter type footage from the church itself. Reports of unexplained footsteps are still made regularly, and some even claim to have seen the nun. I highly suggest looking the area up on Google Maps, you guys. I was looking at Borley itself on Street View, and oh my god, it's so pretty. Honestly, <gasps> England wow. overall is very, the little villages are very picturesque Seriously. and gorgeous. Like the houses are beautiful and the area itself, it, it's something that you just don't see that stuff. No. You're like, it is stunning, you guys. I would take, honestly, I said I said what I said throughout the episode about not wanting to be with the ghosts, but if the ghosts <laughs> meant that I could live in like a freaking like Disney dreamland house. I mean, in this economy. I'll take the ghosts. I'll take the ghosts. I'll take what I gotta take if Absolutely. it means I'm getting the house. Yep. Harry Price ended up writing two books about his experience at the Borley Rectory, and it's believed that he was working on a third one when he died in 1948. The land where the rectory stood was later divided up into a farm and four bungalows, and this is what you can see today when you look it up on Google Maps, which again, really pretty, you guys. And I really hate that I see stuff like this, and I just said it, like, oh, a nice little hamlet, a beautiful home, sure it has ghosts, and I'm in. And again, like my first thought was that, you know, the ghost, maybe not, but I would take it. And that, all of that just reminds me that I would die first in a horror movie. <laughs> again, in this economy, we got, I, you gotta do what you gotta do. I, once upon a time, I was like, when the family moves into the beautiful, too good to be true house, and then all the walls start bleeding Right, and you're stuff, like, what a bunch of idiots. What a bunch of idiots. But now that I'm an adult and I have bills to play, to play, bills to pay, and I'm trying to like save for a home of my own. Yeah. I take it, you guys. Take I it. take it in a Just heartbeat. Oh my lord. After the death of Price, three of the members of the Society for Psychical Research decided to investigate his claims regarding Borley Rectory. And this is interesting because two of them were actually two of his closest friends. And once he died, they just kind of went into finding a way to prove him wrong, which, like, kind of a dick move, guys. A little bit, a little bit. So... Eric Dingwall, Kathleen Goldney, and Trevor Hall published their findings in the 1956 book, The Haunting of Borley Rectory. In the book, they spoke about how they had eventually concluded that a lot of the phenomena was actually produced by Price himself. This became known as the Borley Report, and it stated that most of the things that had occurred while the property was being investigated were caused by either natural causes, like vermin in the home, and that many of the sounds heard were just caused by the old house itself. They wrote, When analyzed, the evidence for haunting and poltergeist activity for each and every period appears to diminish in force and finally to vanish away. Terence Hines also accused Marianne Foister of actively engaging in fraudulently creating the phenomena. And interestingly enough, they said that she made it up because she was having an affair with a lodger. Oh and so she instead Lord. was like making let's, up ghosts. Let's direct the attention away from my sordid love affair. Right? Oh my Talk God. about ghosts instead. Exactly. Now, not everyone stood against Price at this time. Robert Hastings, another paranormal researcher, stood by Price's claims along with a few others, but in 1997, another report from the Society for Psychical Research stated that none of his defenders were ever able to prove him right, while many of the people who did not agree with him appeared to have proof that the events were fake. 
However, we have to remember that the events at Borley Rectory didn't just start when Price arrived, nor did they start during the time that the Foisters lived there. This had been going on for centuries at this point before the area was ever investigated, which really makes one wonder if Harry Price just kind of beefed the story up so he could write books about it and make money, or if there really was something happening at Borley Rectory. And friends, that is the story of the haunting at Borley Rectory, the most haunted house in England. There's so many amazing haunting stories from the UK. This is the first one that we've covered, but it's not going to be the last. If you guys listened to this episode and thought of another haunted location you want us to cover, please don't be shy. Email us at thegrimcurriculum at gmail.com. And we have a few things that we want to go over just before we wrap up today's episode. One of them being an absolutely fascinating message that we got from a listener regarding the Dyatlov series we just did. Yes, so a huge shout out to Cosplay Bug Yeg on Instagram for reaching out because we both found this fascinating. Uh, her father did ski patrol here in the mountains in BC and he was trained to look for and trigger avalanches as a part of his job. She wrote, Hey, I just wanted to share some avalanche knowledge with you. I used to live in BC, which is British Columbia for those of you not from Canada, And every year in school, from kindergarten to grade 12, we were taught avalanche safety and recovery. One of the comments you made in the podcast had me thinking. You said, why would they slow down when they got to the trees? In avalanche training, we were always taught to run to the trees. Most places where avalanches regularly are, there will be no trees. Next time you pass through Banff or Jasper, look around and you'll notice blank spots of white where the snow would be and then bunches of trees. The white area is where the snow often slides down the hill. So running for the trees increases your chance of survival because chances are an avalanche probably won't hit there. Now, if the avalanche is big enough and hits the trees, your chance of survival there is also still higher. Trees will break up the moving snow. Snow in avalanches acts like water, so think of trees like stones on a river. The water moves around the rocks, but usually doesn't move the sturdier ones. Same logic with the trees. Get behind one, grab it, and hang on tight. Another thing to think about, you can sometimes hear and feel avalanches coming. If this were the case, they may have had enough time to cut open the tent and start running. Another thing of note, if I remember correctly, not all the bodies of the people in the areas that were not in the tree line were very deep in the snow. If these hikers were as trained as you know them to be, they would know another fun fact about avalanche survival. If you are ever caught in an avalanche, swim. If you use your arms and legs like you're swimming, it keeps you from getting buried too deep. It could also explain why the tent was found not super buried. A tent flopping around in moving snow may have had similar movements to swimming, which would keep it higher up. I also have a theory as to why they may have thought it was safe to tent there. You can test to see if there is a slab avalanche growing. Basically, what you do, and my dad used to do this when he worked on ski patrol at Fernie Mountain, if you take a shovel and cut it into the snow straight down, you can see the layers of snow this way. A slab avalanche happens when there is a weak layer or powder layer of snow with additional heavier layers of of snow on top. If our hikers did not make one of these checks or did not dig deep enough, or if they did check and didn't see anything wrong but then it snowed that night, which could change the conditions to the snow slab, they could have been part of the avalanche. Wow, that that is very insightful. Isn't that crazy? That's that really blew cool. my mind. Thank you so much for sending us that message. Absolutely. 
by all means, we love hearing your guys' perspective on things, so please send us stuff like this if we mention something and you're like, yeah, ah, I know, I know, I know the answer, I know the answer. So first of all, thank you so much for reaching out and clarifying this with us. We, we appreciate hearing from you guys anyway, so... Getting a unique perspective on our cases is uh, its really nice. We do. We really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you so much. So a lot of what she said, it makes absolute sense to me. And if you're curious about this kind of stuff, there's a lot of great infographics available that explain how these occur. And of, of course, a lot of videos on YouTube. But I maintain this kind of stuff. It scares the absolute crap out of me. Like, I love the mountains so much, but like I like to look at them and not risk being buried alive in snow and mud. I have to agree with yeah. you there. So in a little more housekeeping news, we want to take a second to thank all of the lovely folks who have been supporting us on Patreon. If you haven't had a chance to check it out yet and you'd like to support the podcast, then please go to patreon.com slash the grim curriculum and uh, check it out. You can join for as little as $3 a month Canadian, and we have some fun perks including movie night, stickers, behind the scenes vids, and more. And speaking of Patreon, we want to shout out our Grim VIPs on Patreon. So a huge thank you to Hillary, Brian, Lisa, and Pink underscore Flamingo 20. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. And of course, thank you all for listening and joining us for another wild ride. I am beyond excited for next week's topic. So a little hint. She's a wild one, but she isn't what you would expect. Yeah, I'm I'm freaking stoked Ooh. because we might have uh, taken a quick little visit to my home country, but we're taking a little visit to Dina's home country. We're going next back week. to the old country. <laughs> I'm excited. We've got a theme for October, yes. it seems. Oh, actually, um, quick reminder: as uh, same as last week, we are doing extra life uh, this year. Um, we've got some information in the description below. We're going to add it to our link tree as well. We sure are. Um, basically, we're helping raise money for the local children's hospital here in Edmonton. That's the, the Stollery. The Stollery. Um, we're going through Extra Life. I've done it a few years in a row now. Dina has joined the team. We are the stream daddies over at extra-life.org. So if you want to check us out and uh, throw some money to, to some kids in need, we would love that. Uh, Dina and I are trying to plan some kind of uh, fun, scary stream at some point. Too. And I know those of you who do watch my stream, I get asked on a regular basis, when are you streaming with Charlotte? The time <laughs> is coming, my friends. We're planning it. It's going to be glorious. I'm looking forward to it very, very much. Me too. Until then, make sure you don't miss out on the Grim Curriculum news by following us on Instagram at The Grim Curriculum and Grim Curriculum on Twitter. You can also find us on social media. I'm Dina V on Twitch, Dina V IG on Instagram, and Dina V tweets on Twitter. And I'm Ominous underscore Walrus on Twitter. I'm also Ominous underscore Walrus on Twitch when I do stream for Extra Life, and I'm Ominous Walrus on Instagram. Join us every single Saturday for a new episode, and we also do a live premiere on YouTube at at 12 p.m. MST, so come hang out with us and discuss the case in real time, and go right now, subscribe to our channel. Yeah, the likes and comments always help with the algorithm gods Absolutely. as well. Thanks for listening, you guys. This has been The, the Grim, Grim Curriculum. Curriculum.